Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with Joy Layden. There is a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Hi, Joy. Can you hear me? Hi, I can. Okay. I don't, um... So this is uh, it's Krista Tippett here. Nice to virtually meet you. Yes, exactly. Um, Chris, do we need some banter to just get to get uh, yes, levels? Please. Okay. So, so I don't want to talk about anything meaningful yet. So, tell me something like, uh, <laughs> tell me what you had for lunch. I'll tell you something even less meaningful, which is that my hair is stuck under the headphones, so I'm busy uh, is, trying to extricate it. Uh, do, you have, do you have help with that, or do you need help with that? I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to take them off and start <laughs> okay. over. All right, no problem. Okay, is this better? Um, does that, okay. Are you okay? Does it work now? Mm-hmm. All right. Um, do you have any questions for, for me before we start? Well, is there stuff that you would like me to sort of get ready to talk about, or do you just want to see what happens? You know, I, um, I've been steeped in your mm-hmm. writing and, and learning about you and reading other interviews you've given, so um, I'm ready to have a far-reaching conversation, but about things that you think and write about all the time. Um, so nothing surprising. Um, I think one way I'd like to talk about how I want to frame the conversation is, um, you know, that that the focus is not just on you as a person with this experience, this as a tra- transgender person and writer, but you as a person with a unique experience of gender writ large. Um, and also and kind of explore that in, in relationship to your particular story, but also to our kind of common struggle to discern what it means to be human. And and also the way um your story encompasses questions of who God is and who we are as religious communities. But I'm I'm ready to take the lead on this. And as I say, these are things you've been pondering and living for a long time. Yes, I only feel like I um, I haven't done my homework. Oh no! Don't worry. <laughs> you have you, your life is your homework. <laughs> Relax about that. Um, and the other thing is, we get to we have a you know we have a good hour and a half here. We'll probably go between seventy five and ninety minutes, and and we get to have a a real conversation. And if you want to at some point stop and go back and say something differently, you know, we really do get to have a real conversation, and then we can we can we'll edit it down for the broadcast in any case. So, That's um, really terrific. Yeah, yeah. So, so just relax into that. It gets to be messy the way a real conversation is messy. Um, okay, so can we do this? All right. Um, I like to start. Um, I, I, this is where I, I start all my conversations is by is by talking about um, asking about the religious background of your childhood and from what I've been reading about you. It, I, I think you've described your your family as Jewish but not religious. But but you yourself, it sounds like from a, from a young age, were very drawn to the rituals and and and, and to Jewish tradition. You know, I'm uh, had a very strange 
relation to Judaism. Um, one of my friends, Rabbi Jill Hammer, I was talking with her about it, and she said, oh, you were a feral Jew. Um, <laughs> I've never heard that was term kind of before. Like, in terms of, re- because I was religious and no one in my world was religious, it was almost like I was a Jew raised by wolves huh. in that regard. I, I hope my mother isn't going to listen to this. <laughs> she wasn't a wolf in any respect, but I um, I ended, I wasn't that attracted to the ritual, although obsessive compulsive behavior does have an appeal to me, and so <laughs> I ended up getting attracted to it. But what really um, drew me to, to Judaism was that, like many trans kids, I had an intense sense of God as um, as a real living constant presence, and Judaism not Jewishness as an ethnicity, but Judaism uh, in general, and the Torah in particular, was really the only place in my world that there was any uh, talk about God, representation of God, sense of God. So that's how I, you know, I just kind of glommed on to the relationship with God part of Judaism, and I ignored or reconfigured the rest of it of Judaism to fit my childhood needs. You know, somewhere you wrote, um, Torah was the only text, the only voice that spoke to my transgender fears and longings. You wrote, to me, the Torah was not just a tree of life. It was the tree of my life, rooting my struggles in the 3,000-year-old struggles of the Jewish people, leading me along its terrifying branches towards the God who inexplicably had created me. (laughs) It's very beautiful and a big thought. Thank you. <laughs> it's also, I you know, literally true. I always uh, get scared when people read back something I've written because, you know, I'm a poet and we we really go into business because we care more about how things sound than what they mean. So, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but but that actually, yes, that was um, that was true in a way that I'm still just starting to unpack. Hmm. Um, I really did find so much of my life in the Torah, and I think that that's a very traditional response to the Torah. I think that's the way that it's supposed to work. Hmm. And, and and it's interesting, and we'll talk some more about this, but it, but that, that, that that statement is true at the same time that that gender division is really a central feature of a tradition-based community mm-hmm. like Orthodox Judaism. It's But it's both and. And, uh, and I, I think... And, and then tell me... Um, how would you, this is obviously an enormous, this is now we're walking on, stepping onto this huge territory, but how would you begin to talk about your sense of gender, of your gender and the gender of others um, in your earliest life? You know, actually that connects to the Torah. So when, when we read the Torah now, it's hard not to read it. And in fact, Jews are supposed to read it in the light of the way it was, uh, of the Jewish civilization that grew out of it. And, for, you know, like everybody, we focus on the contemporary manifestations of that. And so um, traditional Judaism is extremely um, gender divided. And, however, it, the Torah includes one really genderless character, and that's God. And genderless in the sense, because despite the male pronouns, God doesn't have a body. And that enabled, you know, when I was a kid, that was a very powerful, not really articulated 
sense of connection that I had because I had male pronouns, but I didn't feel like I had a body. Hmm. Um, and it's quite clear in the Torah that whatever God is, God isn't human. And the maleness that is, I, I think, really kind of grammatically ascribed to God in the um, in the Torah narratives, like Hebrew is gendered, you have to give some uh, gender to everyone. Um, it's pretty clear that that doesn't relate to human notions of what being a man is. God isn't our role model. You know, when you grow up male in Judaism, people don't say, you know, be just like God. <laughs> That's what a man looks like. Yeah. <laughs> Create the world. Yeah. Um, so, you know, my earliest sense of gender was of being disembodied in terms of who I truly was and also having a very rooted and circumscribed so male social identity. Mm-hmm. You, you've written in this way about, you know, that you had a body that felt like a cross between a mask and a tomb. I mean, I think that's how it came to feel as you became older and could articulate something like that. But it's a very stunning and disturbing, disturbing image of um, your relationship with your own body. Yeah, my body and I weren't best friends. Um, I was um, I was self harming, um, as uh, I know you know. Um, I tried to kill myself a couple of times, but mostly, I was dissociated. Um, when my when my children were small, they would often ask me for stories from my childhood, and you know, I I knew enough about parenting to know you don't talk about you know, self-harming and suicide <laughs> attempts. And they, they, you know, they want happy stories. And happy stories are about feeling good. Feeling is rooted to the body. I almost don't remember, I have very few memories and they're very scattered from my childhood because I didn't experience things very physically. So memories weren't anchored in physical experience. Mm. But I had this one story that I told them over and over again until they realized that they should, you know, it was so boring, they should stop asking the question about um, being like eight years old and making my own Pop-Tart, you know, putting it in the toaster and wrapping it up in a paper towel and taking it outside on a cold November day into the a clearing in the little woods behind the house and eating it. And for some reason, that I wasn't too dissociated to feel all of those things. It was an incredible pleasure to me, and I still remember it. And that was like one of the very few stories that I had to tell the kids because it was one of the few times that I was connected enough to my um, body to have really pleasurable memories from it. Yeah. So, again, I mean, I just think this... And, and you know, getting at this idea of what what gender is, I mean, that this... This was a total disconnection that your sense of the gap between the gender of you and the gender of your body meant a compl- meant being disembodied, really. It really did, and I'm uh, I've been doing you know I've been doing a lot of talking and writing about this, and my my ideas about this have grown to some extent. I've started to understand some of the consequences, like I've started to think of this as a a developmental problem, a a child development problem. Um, What happens when 
um, a child can't fill in one of the fundamental coordinates of identity and sense of self. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of versions of this. Kids who don't know their families um, can't do that. I mean, I'm sure you've talked to many people where there were kind of holes in their sense of self right. when they were children. Gender is such a fundamental constituent of identity and social relationship that growing up in a culture which really had no term for what I was or what my relationship to gender and my body were, um, I think I wasn't able to complete like the syntax of being. My, my, my I am sentence could mm. never be mm. completed in certain fundamental ways. Mm. And I think a lot of things, the dissociation and... Um, I was, when I, I got the invitation for your show, I was thinking, wow, I'm, I've got to be one of the least qualified people to speak on a program called On Being because I feel like <laughs> it only existed for a few years. <laughs> right, but, but you did exist, right? I mean, you know, you, you, and I know what you're saying, but I mean, that's the great puzzle um, that you describe. And I mean, you, you know, you, you, you use images like... Um, and I'm, I'm speaking especially from your memoir, um, you know, about as you became a um, fully-fledged adult citizen, a, a married man, a father, a, a poet, a, you know, ultimately a tenured professor. But you would, you know, talk about like zipping yourself into your male self and signing emails and checks as him. And uh, this, again, this total disconnect between you and him, which, as you're saying, which, which translated into feeling like you weren't. Yeah, this is something that, um, you know, I grew up in isolation, and so I didn't know how much of the ways that I was were typical of trans people mm-hmm. or idiosyncratic to me. I mean, I'm, everybody is different, regardless of their, you know, gender identity. And... I've come to realize that I was very typical uh, of a lot of transsexuals. Uh, that's a the special kind of, um, you know, one category of transgender mm-hmm. people, the folks who really um, identify with the wrong end of the gender binary in terms of their bodies. Um, I, Because many of us, we define, as we grow up, we define who we really are by keep continually saying, I'm not this person that I seem to be. Mm. And our in, our identity is strangely rooted in the assertion of who we aren't. Mm. Um, it's kind of like negative theology. <laughs> you can figure out who God is by not this, not that. Mm. And it's not literally true. So now that I'm, you know, now that I'm trying to be a whole person, it's really a problem to have spent most of my life not identifying with things that I did, I really did them, things that I, you know, choices I made, I, I made those choices, they really are part of me. And some of that, I think, was a built-in dissociation because of the, um, you know, the mismatch between kind of the gender of my brain, probably, um, and the sex of my body, but some of it was my own psychological amplification, my need to... Um, make sure that at every moment, because nothing else in the world was reinforcing my sense of who I was, I had to reinforce it. And the only way that I could reinforce it, because I couldn't do anything to act on my sense of who I was, was to continually insist that I wasn't the man who was doing this or that. 
you, this is another kind of striking sentence you wrote somewhere that, and that's you know at at, at at a certain point you did you did transition, you did begin to transition, and you said whether, but whether whether you wore male clothing or female clothing, you were always cross dressing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, and I was at that awkward stage when you don't have a gender. <laughs> um, of happily, most people don't rem- remember that. I mean, babies really don't have genders, and it's not a problem uh, because they don't have social identities. But it is a problem when you're 45 years old, and um, are really between gender identities. Uh, my male identity was really dead, um, and I could sort of put it on, and I did continue, even after I was living as myself, continue to to do that when I saw my children mm-hmm. um, as many times a week as I could, but, but it really was no longer a functional identity, and I had never seen the light of day as anything other than a man. So I didn't have a functional female identity either. You know, there's a you you said something about your observation of gender and your wife, who's you know, who was this woman you were living with, sharing your life with for a long time, and um, and it, it, it I thought it was an interesting observation that you know that your her gender did not define her, but it enabled her to define herself. Gender is something that is so, as you said, there are other ways. We can be incomplete. We can be lacking essential pieces of human selfhood um, and health. But this one is so often so unreflected, you know, at its core. I mean, there are many aspects of it that we pay a lot of attention to. But um, that idea that, but but then it seems like because this was denied you, this natural, mm. this 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 fundamental, this given, this inheritance. Um, uh, you know, it, it did then become something, this this absolutely huge obstacle in and of itself. It did, and I, I sort of did a lifelong involuntary course in gender studies. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, it was sort of the opposite of the Marshall McLuhan saying, whoever discovered water, you can bet it wasn't a fish. And to me, gender was like a fifth fish trying to breathe air. Hmm. It was the, you know, the binary gender system that was really all that was available in the mid-20th century white middle-class world that I was living in. Um, It was really toxic for me. I couldn't thrive or survive in it, and so I had no choice but to be excruciatingly aware of it. So one of the things you're doing that your experience has brought you to do is, is challenge the notion of well, just this idea that there's this natural, that there's something called nature, and that, as you say, it is binary. There's male, there's female. And it's, it's, inter- it's an interesting moment um, because that I think that that is being questioned in the larger culture in new ways or that, that observation and discussion is opening up. But, but you do really challenge um, what, what has been a very basic assumption um, for a long time in human history. Certainly in Western history. It has, although there have been surprising um, differences even in Western history, like the Talmud's discussion of the other two sexes, the tumtum, which is the person without 
distinguishable genitals and really? the androgynos. Um, what we would what used to be called hermaphrodite, what we would now call an intersex person. Mm-hmm. Those aren't differences in gender. There are differences in the sex of the body, but it's a problem for the rabbis because what are the laws that apply to such people because so many of the Jewish laws are gender-based. And um, trans uh, Jewish theologists have been doing some exciting work on that, arguing that the, you know, the essential thing to notice about this is that the rabbis didn't say, if you don't fit the binary gender system, you're not part of the community. Mm-hmm. Instead, they said, you're Jewish, and therefore you must be bound by the law in some way or another. We have to figure out how this works in these special circumstances. So that is uh, not a direct precedent for some of the kinds of thinking that's going on about what do you do with people who have gender identities that we're, we don't know how to how yeah. to work with. Yeah. Um, but the I think that some of that decoupling happened has been happening for longer than we were aware of. Um, so when uh, when children are I would say this probably still happens when children are born the first thing that tends to be said is it's a boy or it's a girl yeah right <laughs> by the person who delivers them yes. that's a statement about sex the sex of the body it isn't actually a statement about gender but by the time those words reach the parents ears. They have been translated into a whole set of assumptions about gender. And in the in the old days, uh, the parent on hearing it's a boy would translate that into, oh, great, it's a heterosexual male who will have a male gender identity consistent with physical sex. And you know, now we're pretty accustomed to the idea that saying it's a boy or it's a girl is not saying it's a heterosexual boy or it's a heterosexual girl. We know that sexual orientation is not coupled to the sex of the body. Right. And I, I'm very aware of that, that um, we still conflate the discussion of sexual orientation, where, we, you know, sometimes th- these things are tantamount, right? Sexual orientation and gender is th- th- those, these, and they're, they're separate. I mean, really, your life is, a, as you said, a great experiment in gender identity and 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 sex is in there, but it's it it's it's yeah. I, I think that's an interesting way you just talked about decoupling, even that definition at the beginning of life. This the assumptions that are still unusually uh, um, are are still typically assumed. So what you have is a physical fact that is translated into other assumptions, mm-hmm. like you know uh, David Hume really irritated me by pointing out it the end of some essay that just because the sun has come up in the east as long as we can remember doesn't mean it will tomorrow. Um, and so it's, it's the kind of change that's happening. It's uh, We now know that the, the sex of a baby doesn't determine their sexual orientation, mm-hmm. but we tend to still assume, and I assumed with my own children, even though I certainly should have known better, that my daughters would have a female gender identity to go with their female bodies and that their gender expression would be within the norms of female gender expression, whatever they were. Mm-hmm. But all of those things are we're now realizing are separate. You can have this kind of a body, but that kind of a gender identity or that kind of gender expression or that kind of sexual orientation. I think one thing I appreciate in your writing and reflection is that you also... Um, 
understand that that how natural that resistance or how how natural mm. it is. I mean, how we're wired to want order for you know to one you know you wrote that we're it's natural for our minds to sort non-binary phenomena into categories for us to put category, these kinds of uh, binaries as the cornerstone of worldviews and f- and for us psychologically and even I think we're learning physiologically to cling to and defend you know what we know over against what feels uh, chaotic and, and, and frightening and new. Yes, and I know that because I'm I guess because I'm deeply uncool in some sort of way. So, <laughs> explain. <laughs> if I had transitioned um, a couple of decades earlier, I would have, you know, had a chance to be briefly cool, sort of cutting edge, uh, gender outlaw. But by the time I transitioned, um, being a mid twentieth century gender binary bound transsexual is pretty old hat, you know, being gender fluid or gender queer or mix and match or alternating, all of these things are are much more interesting to people. But <laughs> the truth is that, you know, I I want um, I want stuff that, that most people want. You know, I want to be a parent to my children. I I want to have a job where I that I feel both, you know, remunerates me and enables me to live, but also where I feel like I'm contributing meaningful work to to my world. Um, and I know because I lived in, in this sort of wilderness outside um, a coherent world looking in, yeah. I know the human longing to live in that coherent world, and I know how terrifying it is when when I confront things that um, that challenge my ability to put the world together. I also think that's where the intimacy that many trans kids report with God comes from. I think God's a lot easier to encounter outside um, established social order and social identity. And, you know, trans kids don't have to do a lot of spiritual disciplines in order to break down their attachment to those things. Hmm. We we can't get into, you know, we can't be attached to those things because they don't fit us. Hmm. Hmm. So we're just sort of stuck with God. Um, hmm. Very big thoughts. Um, I would love to dig around a little bit in what you've learned about gender in, as you said, you know, your lifelong experiment with gender, whether you would have chosen that or not. Um, I found it as a woman, um, as somebody who's born female and always fit into the, the the traditional binary category. It's really interesting to read about your journey into becoming a woman, and um, you know, a lot of things that uh, I'd never, a lot of things that were so new to you, mm-hmm. that are so basic, and how the delight right <laughs> that you took in them. Uh, um, what did you? Yeah. I wonder, like, what did you? This it's always a fraught. This is always fraught territory. Whether you know the the, the transgender <laughs> piece of this aside, talking about gender identity and what it is to be a man and what it is to be a woman. But but we're all aware that 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 these that gender means so much. So I want to wade into this dangerous territory. I mean, what what did you? What did you start learning about being a woman um, that surprised you? Uh, mm. That's a really great question. I want to back up 
to it. Okay. Because when I, um, most of my life, I was still, even though I didn't fit in the you're either a man or a woman system, that was still the only system that I had access to. So if I, when I thought about gender transition, I did articulate that to myself as, you know, becoming a woman. But through a lot of kind of agonizing reflection and experience, and, and really crucially through discussions with my, um, with my now ex-wife while we were still married, she, uh, you know, she pointed out things that are very true, which is that I, you can't um, have a male body and live for 40-plus years as a man and be socialized male and ever become a woman in the sense that somebody who's born and socialized and mm. lives as a woman, as a female, is. And that's just, you know, that may sadden me, you know, whatever. It doesn't matter how I feel about it. It really is true. And um, when I started publishing uh, about this, some of the comments, and I, I know we're never supposed to read comments online, but, <laughs> but some of the really um, hurtful comments also really taught me a lot. They taught me that peop women across the political spectrum, from deeply conservative to kind of radical feminist, were... Um, were saying the same thing. What they were saying in their comments was, listen, to me, woman means the whole package. It's not just biology, it's socialization, it's, you know, it's everything together, and I've suffered for yeah. that identity. Right. I've given it, it's taken on meaning for me through a lifetime in a world that really is inimical to women, and yet I've made that an identity that, you know, that I'm proud of, and you can't waltz in at 45 years old mm. And take that word and that identity away from me. And I am not speaking for anybody other than myself, but but I felt that they were right, and that um, I can't cut myself open and show that I have some sort of ineffable woman essence that's the same as other people's. You know, yeah. I, I don't even believe in such a thing. And but what I can say that's factually true is. I lived most of my life as a man or male. I felt that I wasn't. And now I live as a woman that I know that I am. And that doesn't mean I am a woman, but I do live as a woman. I mean, I, you know, I've been cheated by an auto mechanic as a woman. <laughs> um, uh, I've been, you know, sweetied by people who are younger than I am, yeah. you know. Yeah. So... So I get all that, you know, wonderful stuff. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and you know, when you when you write about um, the, your transition and, and and having to learn to 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 walk and and speak mm -hmm. as a woman, um, and some of this was was helped along by hormones, but it was also it was learning a way of being in the world, well, a way of moving through the world. But mm -hmm. and you also, you know, you learned things about. Um, you did learn things about authority that is that is given when you speak as a man and how that's different when, when you speak as a woman or from a sense yeah. of safety that's there when you walk down the street as a man. Or I remember you had a friend who said to you, remember, Joy, now you walk as a woman. And that's very striking, that experience you've had. It is really striking. And um, it's different to become yourself in any respect in middle age as opposed to when you're a child, partly because you're the, you know, you tend to be the only one 
around who's going through those developmental stages, but also because you do it with adult mm. consciousness mm -hmm. for better and for worse. So I could see myself trying to learn to walk in a different way and, um, you know, silly stages that I actually couldn't have avoided. Like um, I read online, if you, you know, anybody can go online and find out, uh, you know, get trans guides to how to, you know, what men and women do. If you want to be, that's a social mm. part of gender. It, mm. Among other things, gender is a way that we recognize one another and interpret one another. So those guides say, look, if you want to be interpreted as a woman, here are some things you want to you want to do. And one of them was uh, women speak with their hands much more than men do. And obviously all of this is culture specific. So I thought, okay, speak with my hands. <laughs> what do you do? Like, can we be more specific? So <laughs> at a certain point I would be talking, you know, at great length as I am now. And then I think, wait, I haven't moved my hands. Huh. And I would just sort of edge, you know, flutter, flutter them. And then I'd forget about them again. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it was it was ridiculous, and I would say that um, I've, one of the luxuries of my relation there are a lot there are a lot of downsides to spending your life feeling you should be something you're not allowed to be, but one of the the great things about coming to living as a woman as late as I did is that. For me, femininity is not associated with oppression or self-negation or anything, uh, any of those losses. I recognize that it is in our, in our cultural system, but women who are socialized as women are trained to respond, to internalize that system. It's a very hard, like the way I've internalized transphobia, mm. um, but I didn't internalize misogyny. Mm. And so when men condescend to me, um, I, you know, I smell blood in the water and I just go for it. You know, I, there's nothing in me that says, yes, yes, make sure he feels good about himself. Hmm. Or just that has, has lived with those kinds of messages for such a long time that you start to block them out, right? That you just decide not yes. to react. Um, That's right. And for me, femininity is actually about liberation and empowerment. It's the bravest thing that I do. And... I I actually think that's the birthright of every woman, um, but I know that the way that we, I know that even my my own daughters, because of the world they're growing up in, they will find they'll have to fight to um, to claim that for themselves. You also you are a poet, and um, language and poetry seems to be. It seems like that you had an early enchantment with words, and I also sense that you, through across your life, um, poetry was something that that was life giving um, amidst other experiences that weren't. Um, how did you? Uh, what happens with language? Mm -hmm. I know you've written a bit about this. You know how you had to how, the transition from male to female and. And living with language and certain words and constructions mm. in a whole different way. Talk about that. I, um, you know, for me, the only, I often forget this when I talk about um, my, you know, for the conversations I have about gender identity tend to be separate from my conversations as a poet. And I'm really grateful to you for putting the, those pieces of me together. But most of my life was about saying I'm not 
whatever I was doing. And writing was the exception. Mm-hmm. When I was writing, particularly when I was writing poetry, that's when I felt I actually was alive. And I felt that I was alive in a way that had nothing to do with my body. I felt that the world, that I was, one of the things about being trans is that you grow up in a world where you know you're not supposed to exist. The world really will be hostile to you if it knows you're there. And you're not even supposed to be a possibility. But when I wrote, the world was a function of the words that I was using. So Mm -hmm. it was a world in which I actually belonged, a world that couldn't exist without me, as opposed to what I feared was the case, which is that my world would be, you know, shattered if I ever existed. So that was, um, it was life-sustaining. And there was something in rhyme, which was, you know, not something that um, an American poet in the growing up in the in poetry workshops in the 70s and 80s was supposed to be enamored of particularly. But um, for me, rhyme was almost like a magic ritual of revealing identity in unlikeness. And I may be making this up retros, uh, you know, retrospectively, but it seems to me that rhyme was, you know, the way I felt that there was a, you know, a fundamental female identity within me that rhymed with that of other you know, with, mm. you know, born girls and women, mm. um, that when I created a rhyme in between dissimilar words, I was revealing something like that hidden essence. I was making it ring true. That's rhyme usually feels to me like the ringing of truth. Mm. Mm. And you, um, I remember reading that there were words that you didn't allow yourself mm. to use. <laughs> when you were living that dance of being a man and not feeling like yourself and then words that you did consciously use tell me and I mean was that just a feeling you had about which words were male and which words were female well I it clearly was and I didn't know how um how strange and twisted I really really was um, until I started to transition and needed to, to be a person that I felt like I was and a writer who really existed. So I couldn't afford to just lose large chunks of the English language. Right. Um, and that's when I realized I, I had. Um, because I had this um, tremendous fear that I would be discovered, that people would see me, and it still seizes me. I still feel like uh, people will look at me and think, oh, you're not a person, you're a cardboard cutout, like an ad for a movie. And you know, we can see, you know, we can walk around you and there's nothing mm. back there. But that's what I felt that people would discover about my male identity. And, and I now realize that that fear was actually a deep wish. I really wished somebody would actually see me mm-hmm. because I'd never been seen. Nobody had, including, I'd never even seen myself. So I have this fear and uh, this wish that's translated into a fear. And because the fear wasn't real, you have to do quite a bit to make people think you're not actually the sex of your body. Hmm. Um, but to me, it seemed I was always on the verge of discovery. So I you know, I created this um, really obsessive, compulsive system of self-monitoring and... I would just keep adding things to it. And, and this is actually you know, sort of analogous to what um, 
rabbinic law does with um, laws of the Torah. It keeps adding extra provisions to make mm. sure nobody violates the fundamental rule. So, you know, mm. I made myself look away from dolls when I was a child. And I shouldn't, you know, move my body in a way that a girl moves her body. But I shouldn't actually look at girls because that would betray my interest. But how do I know how not to move my body? And words, um, I could see that my mother and my father used language differently and used different language. Hmm. Um, so you think but, maybe with that knowing you were studying, you're studying how men did things and how it contrasted with how women did things? Well, every child does yeah, that. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. That's the way we, we, we grow into it. And in fact, something that blew my mind in my 20s, I came across a, a study of child development that said that people learn to be male and female by actually learning all the rules of the opposite gender so that they know not what not to do. And I was like, mm. oh, mm. right, it's all in there somewhere. Mm. But I couldn't let myself look at it because I was afraid that then I would you know, really not be able to stop. So what happened was some things were, like I think it's a common association because we associate pink with girls in our culture. So yeah. it's not surprising that I would avoid the color pink, but I avoided color. To mm. me, color was something that my mother was concerned about, but not my father. Hmm. And therefore, it was gendered feminine. And it wasn't only avoiding color. I didn't actually pay very much attention to what I was wearing. I paid no attention. To me, it felt like my body was sort of a billboard that people rented out to, hmm. you know, you project your idea of me here. But so what I avoided was the vocabulary of color. <sighs> you know, women talked about their feelings, so I avoided the vocabulary of feeling. Um, it's really, really hard to be much of a poet if you, to me, being female meant really being alive. So I avoided language that to me connoted really being alive. Hmm. And I know somewhere I think the, the word marvelous or things like that, like a word like marvelous, <laughs> you wouldn't use as yes. a man. Do, do you, you remember Tom Robbins? Uh, <laughs> Sorry. Uh, do you remember Tom Robbins' Another Roadside Attraction and the character Marks Marvelous, who, no, no. who chose that name because those were the two most offensive things to an American man: uh -huh. Karl Marx and the word marvelous. <laughs> do you use the word marvelous much these days? You know, I'm afraid I don't. Um, should I? Would I be? Would I be more real? <laughs> I have to say that one of the um, Things to read when I was reading your about your transition that um, was kind of painful as a woman is uh, mm -hmm. and so familiar um, was this you know this how important it becomes how you look <clears throat> now look I have mm -hmm. a fourteen year old son and it's really important for him how he looks so I'm seeing that from another <laughs> side now too but it's different right there's a and and how how um, some of these most wonderful moments that you really mm. needed and that I got them is when somebody told you you looked beautiful. You know, I think your mother told you you looked beautiful. You, maybe your dean. Yes. And, uh, and just recognizing. And, and again, it makes me a little sad how we need that. Um, mm. that and so, but for you, I mean, those were just radiant moments of, of acknowledgement. And, uh, and for me, it was like, oh, this difficult dailiness of, you know, being female um, it's very interesting. Yes. You know, I, I think that that's one of the terrible things that we do 
to girls and women in this culture is that we stare at them. It's also terrible to not be seen. And the great thing about being female in contemporary America is you can be stared at all the time and not be seen at the same time. Hmm. You know, the, the artifacts of femininity, um, of attractiveness, of when, what we judge when we judge girls and women beautiful, often, I think, don't feel to girls and women like they're being seen as who they are. Yeah. So, but you do get to feel shame and exposure and that people are staring at you, particularly men. And um, I was just starved, though, to be visible to anybody. And to me, it was, it, you know, I think it definitely was a question of, you know, can I do this in a way? I, you know, I felt that if I ever saw the light of day, my, if who I really was ever, literally, if the sun ever shone on me, the real me, that it would be unspeakably ugly. Mm. And I didn't think, you know, that it would be like Medusa. I didn't think people would turn to stone, but I thought that they would run away or, or that they would chase me away because they couldn't bear to look at me, that I would be monstrous. And so there was kind of a deeper question that I had that, that those moments responded to, wow, you're, you're seeing me, mm. the real me. And in early transition, it feels like you have no skin at all. There's nothing between you and um, and the world. There's no sense of identity. I don't care how people, what people think. There's, there's none of that. You mm. are who you are seen as being, mm. um, which is pretty hard to live through. But um, at those moments, I thought, oh, my God, you're saying me, I'm not monstrous. Right. I never really believed the beautiful stuff, but to me what they were saying is, you know what? You're not a monster. My son got it about right when... Um, it was a long time before, uh, after I was living as myself, before my children saw me as myself. I wouldn't. I would dress as a guy and act like a guy to whatever extent. Um, and when I started to acclimate them, my therapist suggested that I show them pictures of me, you know, snapshots. And so I did. And my son's reaction was, "Huh, not as bad as I thought." <laughs> and that was the way I understood hmm. beautiful. Right. Huh, not as bad as I thought. I don't have to run away screaming. Yeah. <laughs> Although you filter that through a son, a child, and um, I want to talk about the morality question, the morality of being transgender and of this transition you made, which. Uh, Oh, I don't know when this subject comes up culturally or mm. politically or religiously. It, it's um, it's a big issue, but it's really pr- pretty simply framed, right? Is this a sin? Is it an abomination? Is it contrary to scripture or tradition? The morality of what you lived through and of your identity and the shift in your identity um, is something you've given a huge amount of thought to, and it's far, it's very complicated. There are layers and layers of ways to think about morality. Um, I'd like to get into that. I mean, you, um, you know, well, let, let me just ask that. If you think of the, the morality mm-hmm. of what you've been through, yes. you know, where do you begin to talk about that thicket? You know, I'd like to add another term to the list because, you know, because I, I was very religious, but I was this feral Jew. I wasn't living in a religious community. Um, I was not halachic Jew, so I wasn't following 
the laws as they're um, elaborated for um, in traditional Jewish communities, nobody knew how I was being a Jew. So some of the traditional religious moral terms didn't have a lot of impact on me. I mean, I, you know, God and I talked all the time, and it was clear to me that you know, what I was was a function of God's creation. I thought God had screwed up. <laughs> God never asked for that opinion, but, you know, that was my personal opinion. But um, but the idea, you know, it wasn't something that I was doing. It was something that I was, and I had, I had no choice about being it. But the secular world also provides moralizing terms for transgender people, and the, the one that is most frequently heard is selfish. Hmm. Um, you're selfish. Your your gender, unlike everybody else's gender, your gender is hurting people. Hmm. You don't have to. You know, everybody else. I, I'm I'm guessing some people do. You know, there are gender fluid people who wake up in the morning and say, "Hmm, how? What gender identity shall I present this morning?" But for most of us, we get up and we decide about gender expression. How will I express being a man, or how will I express being a woman? But we don't think, "Hmm, should I be a man or a woman?" It's far too central to our identities for that thought even to occur to us. Mm. And it's really the same for me. I don't have any other gender to be. But because I lived so long as a man and because everybody was perfectly happy <laughs> with that guy, um, it looks to people like a choice. And it's clearly a choice that was terrible for my family um, it was terrible for my wife. It broke up my marriage, broke up my children's home. Um, it created, um, at the very least, confusion and um, social complications that continue to this day. And, you know, um, it really wasn't good for anybody, particularly except for me. And for me, so, so if I chose to do something that was bad for everybody but me, that's an act of radical, even like, sociopathic selfishness mm. and therefore in secular terms it's really bad um, but to me as I say there was no one else that I could be it mm. wasn't a selfish choice it was there was the choice between you know living and dying right. and I did you know I'd romanticized suicide I thought that clearly was the selfless choice because it's the choice to ex you know kill myself for the sake of others but, um, you know, therapists kept arguing that children with um, parents who've committed suicide are, you know, messed up in ways right. that go far beyond what happens to children when their parent transitions from one gender to another but is still there. Uh, as one therapist put it, you have to stay alive so your children can reject you. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. Wow, this is the way you're talking me out of killing myself you're this is tough love <laughs> right. But, <laughs> right but it's a tough it's i mean it's this moral position you found yourself in you as you experienced it was tough all around right i mean you're you're describing yes. that it's you yes. you said somewhere when you were a good man you were a bad person you were a, you felt you were a liar and a coward um i was and then there but there was this cost that you were profoundly aware of um and continue to live with on the other side yes. of that. Yeah. I recently, um, I was asked by the uh, Jewish journal Shema to write about, they were doing an issue on covenant. And I, I think I, 
I'm sorry. Can you? I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, getting a. There's something going on with the technical. Yeah, um, he's she's backed off the mic quite a bit. I'm really? Just talking with the engineer on that end. If okay. She can cheat in a little bit, and I meant to just talk to you, and it's coming through. Your oh, speaker, okay. Which is why she's here. What's coming through? Oh, I'm yeah. I'm sorry. Is this better? Well, yeah. I'm not okay, aware of it. It. Yeah. Okay. So I guess it's just moving in, moving in closer to the mic. I think it's it's fine, but I guess you're I guess you're sounding more faint. Um, okay. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Okay, that's right. So Shema, you were talking about that. In right. So the this uh, Jewish journal Shema was doing an issue on covenant that came out recently, and they they asked me to write about being a breaker of covenants, which I decided to not to take as an insult. Um, <laughs> Hmm, we need somebody who's really messed up here. <laughs> um, but what I ended up learning from that was that the covenant that I'd broken was the covenant of gender. And it's a covenant in a way that I continue to break. So gender, my gender as a man was a promise to people that the way that I was acting was who I really was. That gender was real. It was my real gender identity and it was consonant with my body. And that was a covenant that I couldn't keep because I never felt that I was the man that I was presenting myself as. Mm -hmm. So I was sort of built in breaking that covenant. Now that I've transitioned, people feel that I'm breaking the covenant of gender in another way. And I, I think that this is true. So if I present myself convincingly as female, which is something I, I fear that I'm not able to do, um, on the radio, your voice actually is the voice that I, I aspire to, but <laughs> hormones don't change male to female transsexual voices, so mm -hmm. uh, couldn't get there. But um, you know, but when people take me as authentically female, then that that covenant is not being fulfilled because you know I have an X and a Y chromosome, and you know the, my body still, in in some ways, is the body that goes along with that, and my life, well, I had a life as a man. So um, I realized that that was a kind, I think that that's a lot of why there's a moral freight built into um, gender transition is because people feel like it's a promise about who you are. Yeah. And some of my students at um, Stern College wrote to me and they said that they were angry at me not because they saw me as an abomination, although I, I think some students there probably do, uh, but because they felt that I was presenting myself as a man that I knew that I wasn't. I was lying to them. And mm. I, like like me, they saw our interactions, teaching and teacher-student interactions, as kind of sacred. They're about truth. So how could I have done that with them if I knew that I wasn't being true to them? It's such an interesting uh, interaction with with students. I mean, it it it, it is a you know I, I you um there's a sense in which you be you have your story and you also become kind of a symbol because you are the first trans what what's the trans woman or you're the first. Um, I'm the first openly transgender employee of an Orthodox Jewish okay. institution. But yeah. actually, I think I'm probably the first openly transgender person living at all in the Orthodox Jewish world. Mm -hmm. That might not be true. There might be some people scattered right. around the world or in history. But as far as I know, 
I, I sense in your writing that obviously there are a range of reactions and some of them have been incredibly painful and um, challenging and, and others full of compassion and kindness. Mm. And I, I sense that you, through all of that, you see the, you, you value the communal kind of power uh, of, a, of, a, of that tradition as a virtue, um, even in kind of difficult waters like these. Yes, it was something that I really, um, I, that I was taught by my students. So when I was hired um, to teach at Stern, I had never known Orthodox people, and I'd always um, felt uncomfortable with them because of this uh, a strange thing about Jewish identity. So Orthodox people would be more real Jews than I was, so I would be right. angry about that and feel ashamed. Yeah. But also, I was contemptuous of them because look at all the silly things they do, which I, as a non-Orthodox Jew, don't do. So there's this weird um, mix of truly uh, feelings that really don't reflect well on me, but I think are common. Yeah. Um, so I came in with that prejudice, and I was going to be this, you know, um, you know, role model from uh, the modern world, and a kind of a Jew that, hmm. you know, where I'm really religious, but I'm not Orthodox. And what I ended up finding in my students were truly extraordinary uh, women and human beings. And they, you know, Orthodox Jewish culture has a lot of misogyny built into it, and um, I am not trying to romanticize that away, and my my students do suffer from it. But they also, this was what I hadn't, I'd known that stuff, but what I didn't realize was that in Orthodox Judaism, everything that you do matters. It matters to God. It matters in the absolute sense. So whether or not you light Shabbat candles at the right time, that really matters. Mm. My students knew that their lives mattered in a way that the students I taught in more secular institutions were really wondering, you know, does my life have significance? Does it have meaning? And so my students, mm. though they'd grown up in this misogynist system, often had a wholeness and a vitality and a, um, a seriousness about the trajectory of their lives that, um, that astonished me. And I thought, you know, a culture that produces young women like this obviously has a lot of great things going for it and but it's still a human culture and then i started thinking about it yeah actually i don't know of any human cultures that aren't messed up yeah that's right so yes <laughs> they're human yes yes absolutely and also also something we don't pay enough attention to is that all each of our cultures self-contained as they may be have a huge amount of diversity within them right even yes. even something that looks monolithic right. from the outside. And, you know, theologically, what's interesting to me is you've been living um, right on this boundary um, between of the, the tension between the borders around what it means to be part of a people of God mm-hmm. and a devout part of a tradition. And also, and within Judaism, and this is very intense and passionate, this absolute ethical imperative to welcome the stranger. Yes. <laughs> it is an absolute imperative. I'm not sure. 
I think that it's an absolute imperative because it's really, really hard for mm. um, cultures with strong uh, boundaries to welcome strangers, and it's incredibly hard for oppressed people to do that. Um, not all, I mean, I'm, as a culture, individuals yeah. uh, often are um, able to be extraordinary, but cultures that see themselves as embattled tend to draw clearer and clearer lines between who's us and who's them. And so fear is not usually all that good for welcoming the stranger um, because that requires courage. Strangers are scary. Yeah. Um, who are you taking in? So that is, um, that's a, something that is an, actually an ongoing source of discussion within the Jewish world. What does that mean? And I was just, um, the holiday of Shavuot uh, is traditionally accompanied by a night of Torah study. And at one of the sessions I was at, that was the focal um, texts were about this, the sections that talk about welcoming the stranger and the Hebrew in most of those passages refers not to what we think of as the stranger in um, English, but to what is awkwardly translated as resident alien. You know, right. People with green yeah. cards to traditional Israelite society. You're right. here, you're, you've got a house and everything. You're not one of us, but, you are, but you're going to live among us. And so the Torah says, even though you'll never be one of us, we have to follow certain ethical imperatives. But that's really different than saying somebody, you know, the Scythians or the Babylonians or whatever, that you have to welcome them. Mm-hmm. But I, 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 it seems to me that some of the way you've worked with the text and the tradition is that to see yourself as a gender-resident alien. Yes. <laughs> I have to say I was really thrilled when um, my mother was born in Canada and before she became an American citizen, and after I'd started watching Star Trek on our little black and white TV, um, she explained that she was a resident alien. And I thought, oh, this is so great. I thought you were just my mother, but you're actually an alien. This is so cool. And I was very disappointed when she became a citizen. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's somewhere that you, you said Moses says that as you were like working with these texts, Moses says that those who cross-dress are abhorrent to God. I don't know if did yes. Moses use the term cross-dressing or whatever his equivalent was, but but he doesn't say that cross-dressers aren't human or should be removed from the camp. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know that's a big deal for Moses because there, uh, Moses I don't think. You know Moses does declare that some uh, that Canaanites doesn't say Canaanites aren't human, but he does say that they should be exterminated, um, and. Lepers, for example, and people who are unclean are supposed to be removed from the camp at a certain point. Um, So it is a big deal to single people out and say, you know, these people are not okay, but you you don't exile them or expel them. And I think one of the problems in the um, Orthodox Jewish world of today is that difference is often dealt with first by denial, you know, there's no such thing as people who are gay. There's certainly no such thing as people who are transgender. Um, and then when you see people like that, then you expel them. And you say, well, if you are gay, then you're not mm. orthodox. Mm-hmm. Then you don't love God. Then you're denying the Torah because you're in contradiction. And um, I'm, I'm reluctant to ascribe too much warm, fuzzy liberalness to Moses. I think in some places he's quite scary, the whole death penalty thing in Deuteronomy, (laughs) 
really doesn't please me, but um, <laughs> he seemed to think if you just kill enough people, then as examples, that everybody would be follow the law all the time. That's definitely not what I think. But mm-hmm. um, but I do think that there's um, a sense in the Torah that people are going to do a whole bunch of things, some of which are abhorrent, but don't cross that line of meaning that they can't exist, that they either have to be killed. There's no penalty that's specified. You're just supposed to know it says a, a man who shall not put on the uh, garb of a woman and a woman shall not wear the garb of a man. Whoever does so is abhorrent to the Lord your God. Right. So the penalty for that is just to know that you're making God sick, which is quite a terrible thing to think, to yes. think that God sees you and feels nauseated. Um, but that's way better than shall be publicly stoned. Right. <laughs> yeah. Or cut off from your people, which is a common punishment. Is there something you talking about your therapist said to you when you were going through your divorce, which is very painful? Um, or you're going through the transition, I think. Mm-hmm. What other people think of you is none of your business. You know, that's such a perfectly right logical statement but um that's impossible for any of us to take in starting in kindergarten <sighs> that's right people who really live by that are often not people you want to hang out with <laughs> that's right. i believe tell me a little bit about the new science i know there's not that much science mm. on the transgender experience, but mm-hmm. you write about some that's emerging, mm-hmm. what we might be learning, what we're in the early stages of learning through studies of the you brain. You know what, I'd like to come back to that because what you said about my therapist's quote, yeah. I'm, I'm realizing that there is something very traditionally Jewish about that, which <laughs> is uh, Judaism mostly doesn't regulate thoughts and feelings. Yeah. The, the glaring exception is the thou shalt not covet which is a, a psychological prohibition, mm-hmm. as opposed, but almost all of the Torah is governing action. Like that part of, about Moses, it doesn't say you shall not want to wear the clothing of the opposite sex or thou mm. shalt not be transgender. It says don't do these things. And in so Judaism is a religion that creates a lot of regulation in the public space of action externalized action and a lot of freedom in internal space. Not every religion works that way. Mm -hmm. And what Mm -hmm. my therapist was saying to me is, if you want to survive as a trans person, you need to give other people that internal freedom. You need to say, if they're treating me with basic respect, even if they're just avoiding me, then I need to not worry about what they think about me. Because number one, I'll go crazy and I will internalize all of this, these sort of fantasies of rejection. So psychologically will be unhealthy, but also there's something kind of fundamentally violating of other people's um, psychological integrity. If I say, you're not allowed to have your feelings because your feelings do violence to me. That's... That's in essence what I was told my whole life. I shouldn't feel like I was female because those feelings I felt were doing violence to the people that I loved. They were wrong. And so I need to accord to other people the space to have their own authentic feelings, no matter how much I might be unhappy with them. 
as long as their actions are in accord with the, you know, basic human respect. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And it is easier to say than to yeah, do. Yeah, still very challenging to live at. So what what are we, what do you know about what we are learning um, mm. scientifically about this so, experience? So that the things that uh, seem most promising, and there's very, uh, there are not um, billion dollar projects to uncover the secrets of transgender identity. Uh, we have other medical priorities yeah. related to larger groups of people. So that's one of the reasons this is. This research tends to be very small scale and therefore preliminary. So um, one person has started doing brain scans of trans, uh, transsexuals. And you know, so transgender people are anybody who have complicated relations to gender beyond I'm a man or I'm a woman. But transsexuals are specifically people whose bodies are one sex, but their gender identity is the opposite. So they're the brightest line case. If there's going to be a physical brain difference, you would think transsexuals would be the place where it's clearest. And what the preliminary research indicates is that female to male transsexuals' brains actually, um, in some respects, are a lot like the brains of genetic men. Um, Male to female transsexual brains are somewhat like the brains of genetic females. But according to this um, study there, it's not as striking. Uh, it is a, it's, hmm. it's a statistically significant and a striking and visible difference, but it's not as strong a, a relationship as you see um, with other genders. And you know, one of, there are a couple of problems with that um, kind of research. One is that identity is an extremely subtle a process of consciousness, and brain structures are extremely crude, right? right? So, right. you know, lumps of tissue in the brain and the workings of human consciousness, there's a vast gap between those things. So, well, and there's a vast, vast gap in our ability to understand what looks crude at this point, too. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm not saying that we won't at one point mm-hmm. realize that, but I, I think this is preliminary even beyond that. But the other thing, so all my life I'd sort of wished that someone would cut me open and say, oh yes, you really are what you you feel you are. Hmm. Um, And then when I started reading about these studies, I realized, you know what? Even if I could have, if I had a brain scan tomorrow and they said, you know what? Your brain is just physically male. You're not a transsexual. That would have no significance to me. It wouldn't change my sense of who I was. Like if you had a brain scan and they said, you know, Krista, your brain is actually that of a normal man. You presumably wouldn't start taking testosterone. Yeah. You'd be like, thanks, that's interesting to know. (laughs) Moving on. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So my sense of who I am is not something that I need empirical medical confirmation of, and that's a change for me. Um, Another kind of study that's being done is genetic studies, and there is a study that now suggests that that transsexuals have a some transsexuals have a genetic abnormality that seems to inhibit the absorption of masculinizing or feminizing hormones. Um, and the third, it's, it's not even research, it's like a proposal for research. They've just started doing this, is relates to phantom limb syndrome. So the idea yeah. is that if you're a transsexual, 
and your, um, you know, the parts of your body that don't go along with your gender identity are removed, do you have phantom limb syndrome? Wow. Yeah. Yeah, isn't that a great question? Yeah. And they very prol- I think the person that interviewed seven people, those seven people <laughs> say no. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, do you feel as you progress through this journey, how, how long have you, have, has it been since your transition to a, to a woman? How long have you been a woman? Is that a, I mean, is that a real question? How long have you been a woman? Is that, that's not right. That's not the way you would ask the question, is it? What would you say? How long have you lived well, as a woman, lived openly it as isn't, a woman? I, I feel like you as a woman can accord me that, uh-huh. but I can't claim it for myself as where I am at the moment. I've been living as a woman um, for, wow, all, and later this month it will be exactly six years. Mm-hmm. So I'm six years old. Yeah, all right. Do you feel, um, you know, really that's not a long time, so I don't, I don't know if this question is fair, but I wonder if, obviously gender became the focal point of your life when it was when it was um dis- disordered um and uh i wonder as you if i think back to that that mm-hmm. observation you made about your wife that that gender didn't define her but enabled her to define herself mm-hmm. does gender move into a different perspective mm-hmm. as you experience yourself to be more whole and healthy mm-hmm. and who you are in the world it's a really, really great question. And I think people who transition um, later in life, I don't know how it is for kids who are transitioning now, but um, I think we actually have an accelerated developmental time frame. Mm-hmm. So those six chronological years psychologically have been more, but I still don't have, I don't, you know, I don't have a lifetime uh, living as a woman, but I have enough time where my relationship to gender, as your question gets to, really has shifted. So when I started to transition, I was somebody who had never seen somebody who looked like me in the mirror. I remember the night when I first looked in a mirror and saw someone who looked like me, and it was... Well, I, I don't think I can describe the experience because I'll start crying, mm. but it was really something. And then, you know, then I had to change back, mm. so I disappeared. Um, and for a long time, that was my experience. So what happened, What you know, in a very literal sense, my my deepest self was something that could only be manifested superficially, in the most superficial way, literally putting on makeup. Right. And taking it off because I I had to be able to remove any trace of female identity in order to continue my life. And, but I think that 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 tremendously superficial mode of identity um, reflects something pretty profound about the development of a transgender person's self after transition, which is that it grows from the outside in. you, it grows first very superficially, and you know I love Oscar Wilde saying only superficial people don't judge by appearances. Yes, <laughs> trans person's motto. Yeah. Um, but uh, but what you know I needed to I needed to see myself first of all, mm. just to be visible at all. I had no idea what I looked like. I couldn't even make choices about well what colors look good on me or not. What do I like? What don't I like? Because I'd never seen myself. Um, so the external 
was my gateway into a whole bunch of self-defining preferences, decisions, choices, experiments, things that um, normally we think of as proceeding from the outs- inside and working their way out. Right. You know, I'm not going to, I'm going to wear that because I love that, right? The love is what's the, the real self and the expression of it is more superficial. But mm-hmm. for me, I needed to create a, a, a functional, visible, not even functional, I needed a visible female self first. And then that self had to go out in the world and start developing history and relationships with people. Yeah, to be able to discover and that love, that what you loved. Exactly. Mm. Who was I? Was I ethical? Was I brave? Was I a coward? Was I shy? Was I loud? I had, you know, all of these things were I not discovered and um, had great misgivings about. And so that's why a lot of um, transsexuals in early transition um, are kind. Their their ourselves are kind of like vortices that are consuming the gazes of people around us. Who do I look like to you now? Hmm. I would call up friends. I, I feel constantly like I was disappearing because I had to keep living as a man. I'd call up my friends who lived far away and I would say, do I sound like myself? I feel like I don't remember what I sound like. Is this me? Do I seem real to you? Do I, do I exist? And, I, you know, I can, can't believe the saintly patience of handling those phone calls. <laughs> they should have said is, I'm changing my number. <laughs> So, Joy, if I ask you this large question, you know, what it means to be human, like how your mm. particular life experience, mm. which you could, you know, you continue to discover these mm. things um, that some of us take for granted, um, mm. how how does all of how does your sense of what it means to be human change? What have you what have you learned mm. to put to that question? That's a really wonderful question. I have a sense of humanity as as a very young species. I think we're really a work in progress. I would say developmentally as species go, we're probably in late adolescence. And... Um, still, you know, narcissistically focused on our needs and thus wrecking the systems that we're part of because we don't know how to be responsibly conscious about them. Um, kind of obsessed with the miracle of, of us as hmm. as transsexuals in transition and late adolescents tend to be. That's developmentally appropriate but can be really hard to live with and I think our planet is struggling with that. I think that, um, I think it's an incredible gift to be human that Um, one of the things that I discovered, I didn't, you know, I grew up having a, as dim a view of humanity as you can, because when you live in hiding, when you live convinced that you're surrounded by hatred and rejection, you know, essentially when I was seven years old, I decided that the human race was the kind of species where, you know, a mother would do violence to a child like me. That's a pretty lousy species. Mm -hmm. And what I discovered as I transitioned was that there were so many people who were able to see my humanness even without the, the normal 
you know, gender is something that enables us to recognize one another as human. Other species don't have gender. They have sex, but they don't have gender. We have gender, and we use it to recognize our bodies as not just animal bodies, but as human bodies, as reflecting human selves and human consciousnesses. And I was astonished that people could see me as a human being, even when I really didn't have gender that would enable them to do that, and that they would respond with love, with compassion, with honest questioning, um, with what I saw as great courage. And I thought, you know what? This is a great, great species. And, and, and I just, I really wanted to be human. And uh, yeah, I think that one of the, the blessings and burdens of being trans is that we have, uh, I think most human beings, I think all human beings actually are ratios of being and becoming. And that for most of us after childhood, we think of ourselves as mostly being with some becoming. And when becoming becomes, you know, takes over, becomes a greater proportion, we think of that as a crisis. Mm. It's a midlife crisis or some kind of, you know, religious conversion. There's some, you know, because, and then we'll settle down again and we'll have lives that uh, coalesce. But I think for trans people, I think that for, for me and I think for many of us, becoming is always going to be a greater proportion than being. I'll never have enough experience of life as myself you know, to have that settled, fixed sense. I do have some things that are much more settled than they were, but I think I'm always going to have a sense of, of, of being as something that constantly involves becoming. And I think that that's really the glory of the human race, mm -hmm. is, is that becoming is so much at the core of who we are. And, you know, I don't think anybody should write us off. <laughs> we're not done yet. As a Jew, you've also now had the unusual experience of praying both on the male and female sides of the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. It's pretty amazing. Yes. <laughs> and and I'm not the only one. There are other are there? trans Jews who've done that, but it, which is sort of disappointing. I mean, it's disappointing in a way because it's cool to think of myself <laughs> as the only one, but, but still, there are very few. So tell me, you know, when we started, you talked about that conversation with God, which was so important with you, mm -hmm. even though you were so disconnected with so many really concrete aspects of mm -hmm. your life. And uh, so, you know, kind of a version of the same question, you know, how has your, how has your sense, not mm -hmm. just your sense of what it means to be human, but your sense of who God is, how has that evolved through mm -hmm. all these experiences? I... Um For most of my life, you know, my, my male life, I, uh, my version of Descartes' dictum would have been, I kvetch, therefore I am. You know, I just, I was a walking complaint about existence. And because it all felt wrong to me, and I felt that it wasn't my fault. Um, and, you know, that was actually not true. I still was a responsible human being, but I felt like, you know, basically... I can't be who I am, and so um, I'm really at suffering existence rather than being given a gift and an opportunity and a challenge and a responsibility and all those actually mature attitudes. Um, so I had this very intense relationship with God, and it was a relationship in which, although I felt um, 
keenly my sense of shortcoming, I also felt that God had messed up in relation to me. And in Judaism, I would say the two most important things about being a Jew are living in gratitude and living in joy. And I, and I wasn't able to do either. And I would say to God, you know, that's your fault. Hmm. I can't be grateful for this life and I can't be uh, joyfully live it. And that's not my fault, it's your fault. And then now that I live as myself and I've been given this incredible miracle, um, now, unfortunately, don't have that out. So when I'm talking to God, you know, I, I am obligated to be grateful and joyful. And really, I should, even while flossing, I should be grateful and joyful. But you know, and I, but I'm often not. But now I see that that's that that does reflect ways that I need to grow as a person, hmm. and not some existential raw deal that I was given. And that's pretty extraordinary. I feel that only recently have I begun to be able to really serve God, you know, voluntarily to feel like, you know what, you've given me so much. Um, what can I do for you? Hmm. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. I can't thank you enough. Is there anything you would like to, anything we didn't talk about or that you feel like you want to go back to? Um, any question Gosh, I didn't you, ask you? You are really good. Um, <laughs> Think for a second. I don't feel there's anything incomplete here, but I just want to make sure if there's mm. anything you wanted to say. I think there is one other thing that I would like to talk about, mm -hmm. which is the um, there's a there is a lot of discussion now, particularly because of the push um, to extend marriage rights to all Americans, there's a lot of discussion about the capacity of traditional religious communities to um, to respect people who are different in ways that those communities have, for religious reasons and cultural reasons, stigmatized. Yeah. And so being, the, you know, the first trans person in an Orthodox Jewish institution, open trans person, um, I've had an opportunity to really see how that works and, and how it can work. Um, and so I, you know, I wanted, I think it's one of the things that I've learned is that um, sacred communities, I think, are great. Um, they very they powerfully focus the um, the presence of God. They say, you know, anything in our community, God lives here. Mm -hmm. It's like the the tabernacle in the wilderness, and I think that's an extraordinary thing to do. But the problem with sacred communities is that it becomes very hard to distinguish what's sacred from what's just the normal, you know, what's just a communal norm, because all human communities right. make up rules and right. norms and their insides and outsides and that kind of stuff. And so we sacralize things that really don't have very much to do with the presence of God in our midst. Right. And um, that's not, you know, the, everything is a trade-off. That's the trade-off in sacred communities. So traditional religious communities that 
um, have difficulties with um, LGBTQ people, um, I think are struggling with this question about what's sacred and what's communal norm. Hmm. And that that it is a struggle and one that in many communities is not fully articulated, but some people are articulating it. Some people, you know, there are not many, but there are some Orthodox rabbis who are saying, you know what, um, actually there was 150 Orthodox rabbis who signed on to a statement about this. They said, you know what, yeah, homosexuality, absolutely forbidden, but um, gay Jews are Jews and they have a place in our congregations. Mm-hmm. And it's forbidden to treat them with anything other than respect because they're human beings. And I feel that my students, I I don't talk about this with my students, so maybe I'm making this up, but I I don't think so. I think at bottom, the reason that I I can be, that I can teach where I can teach and that, that I have some students to teach is that there are competing values in religious communities, as in all communities. And one of the great values in traditional Judaism is the idea that all human beings are created in the image of God. And there are other values too. Some of them are xenophobic, some of them are homophobic, and, uh, you know, some of them are exalted and, you know, but different um, Jews and communities will lift up different values and say, this is central, this is defining of us. And for some of my students, they've said, Recognizing you as a human being made in the image of God is way more important than the stuff about you that is really incomprehensible in terms of Orthodox Judaism. We just can't make any sense of you except as a toeva, an abomination. But, but that very tradition is commanding us to recognize that you're human and that therefore we need to see God in you. Hmm. The way we treat you is the way we're treating God. And that, I think, is also a central principle that you find in Christianity. Yeah. That And that is the window, or it's not a window, that's the door that traditional religious communities can open in order to welcome in people whose differences are, are deeply problematic for them. They can say, you know what, this is really difficult for me, but I know that God made you, and you wouldn't be here if God didn't love you, and therefore if only because of my love of God, I need to treat you with respect. Thank you. Thanks for that. Um, we, we do put the um, unedited interview up on the website as well, mm-hmm. and as a podcast, and a lot of people listen to the whole thing. And we will be, um, as I say, t- turning this into 52 minutes of radio. Mm-hmm. So we'll let you know um, as that's happening and... Mm-hmm. and uh, and I, I really just want to thank you again for this conversation. It's very important. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. It's really wonderful. Did you, your producer had told me to bring some poems? I oh yes, I almost forgot them. about that. Yeah. I was just about to yeah. No, we d- we had such a complete experience. Yes. So let's do some poems. We did. I hope this doesn't spoil it. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I wanted to just read three uh, poems that reflect three. I think we're okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. Did, are you? Okay. Joy, are, you are we good? Yeah, we're I'm, good. We're I'm good. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sure. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first poem that I wanted to read is they're all poems that reflect the intersection of relation to God and gender and body and soul. And the first one was uh, 
written when I was in that place between genders, where I just had no capacity even to say I. I didn't know what it referred to. Um, so I wrote a sequence of poems. This is in uh, my book called Transmigration, the first book published under my true name. Um, this, in these poems, they're not about me. They're just about the soul. This is something I uh, learned from Emily Dickinson, that if you talk about the soul, you're implicitly talking about yourself, hmm. but you don't have to make any claims to identity. This is called Somewhere Between Male and Female. Somewhere between male and female, the soul gets lost. Where are you, calls the mother of the soul. But the soul never had a mother. Get back here this instant, the father demands. But somewhere between male and female, the soul failed to be fathered. Male and female split at the seams, leaving the soul naked, crisscrossed with scars, male scars and female scars breast scars and testicle scars, scars like doors and scars like fingers. Fingers point at the naked soul. Doors slam in its face. No, the soul is still alone. It's only dreaming it's been discovered in the space between male and female where no one will ever find it. Um, and, you know, poets... As I said, you know, you become a poet partly because you you recognize the magic of the sound of language, and that's more important to you than the meaning. And I would say that I've discovered that the end of that poem is not true, <laughs> but it was it was true for me when I hmm. wrote it. I didn't. That was my fear. Hmm. Um, so I was um, living as myself in the second year, I think, that I was living as myself. And it was a pretty awful time. And uh, I was alone. I was very alone. And, um, and I got very sick. And I thought, actually, that I had a degenerative neurological condition. So I thought I would soon lose my capacity to write poetry. And I had to write everything that I had to write then. And I wrote basically two manuscripts of poems. One of them is Psalms. It was a book of Psalms. They're direct addresses uh, to God, who's the only other character in them. And um, I wanted to read one of them. The best line in this poem was cribbed from my daughter, who, um, when she was asked what a scribbled picture meant by a preschool teacher, said, God is making me now. Hmm. You are making me now, right now, the clay of me warm in your hands, the hands of me warmed by your hands that shape them, shape a heart that's never beaten, been beaten, skin that shivers in secret places, places that will never be touched except by the maker hunched patiently over the stupidity of matter, leaving your mark between my eyes, my hips, in the clay turning slowly in your hands, blinking a little in your light as I learn to forget the tenderness you reveal in the act of making, to confuse the feeling of your fingers moving inside me with smaller, less luminous fingers that will never reach as deep, whose love will never make me something that can think, can suffer, as your love, finger by finger, is making me now. Mm. Um, and that, I think, is another gift of being trans, is I have a strong sense of being a created 
being. I was not mass-produced. I was handmade. You know, maybe when God was in kindergarten, but still, you know, handmade. Um, The last poem I want to write is called Letter to My Body. And um, it reflects, I think, a much, you know, a later stage and transition where it's more important to me I'm uh, to be a person and less important to me to wonder, am I being a woman? Um, So starting to think about the soul-body relationship without that kind of tortured questions about gender and authenticity. Letter to my body. Philosophers shilly-shally, but it's true. You are me. I am you. This dust, these rays this strange internal sense that after all these years I finally exist. All of this is only mine through you. You still seem surprised, that's part of your charm, that I wish to be extracted from your handsome bindings. This, you say, is only the beginning, which is why it feels like drowning in what we've both survived. Ever the politician, I say I'll be your widow, smiling cheerfully as you die. Not yet, you say, as though this is the other part of your charm. You still believe in time. Violent laughter, yours and mine. Let's go out into the woods of meaning and matter, among the laurels and the mustard, the unlit suns and unnamed branches, listening shoots and loosening leaves we only appreciate when we're drowning in one another. Let's break up before we meet and fall in love again, in the darkening parlor of the heart. Let's wait for God in the gathering dusk and watch the stars come out. Thank you so much, Krista. Oh, thank you, Joy. Thank you. And um, we will be in contact very soon, and I really look forward to putting this on the air. Oh, thank you. I'm really honored. (laughs) Thank you. All right. More soon. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye.